Hey. All right. Daniel today, Daniel chapter 3. Get out your Bibles, pen, paper, journals. We're going to be taking some notes on this section of Scripture. It's been fun to watch in the mornings as they've been doing the skits. And it's, it's fun then to come here at night and to see that come to life. Once again, as we've talked about before, while the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or um, Driftwood, and all the characters in the, the play that we see every morning, it's so interesting. But what makes it more interesting is that these events actually took place. There is a historical Babylon. There, these, King Nebuchadnezzar is a real person. Uh, the, the Bible actually understands Belshazzar as the last king of Babylon before history ever understands that. For thousands of years, the archaeological record thought that the last king of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible says, oh no, there's another king after him named Belshazzar. And guess what? It was right because we found only 50 years ago a tablet in the ancient Near East where we actually found that Belshazzar, just like the Bible says, is the actual last king. That's just to say, as we read the story today, it's really easy for us to make one of two mistakes. One of the two mistakes we make when we read a story like we are today is first, we think of it like you would a fable. We think of it like when you read the story of, or, or listen to the story like Pinocchio, or um, right, like Frozen, right? It's, it's got like some moral value to it, right? And so you walk away like, true love can thaw a frozen heart, right? That's the point of Frozen. No one, you've never met a person who has a brain in their skull who's trying to find the ancient city of Arendelle and trying to find where these events took place. And the Bible's different than that. It's absolutely trying to teach you something, but these events are real. These actually happened. And more so than anything else, this truth about Daniel is important. What's the book of Daniel about? Good. The book of Daniel is about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. Your life's about Jesus. Human history is about Jesus. I can prove it to you just by looking at what the date is today. Today is the date of July 25th, 2023. You might, this, my son asked me this like last week. He goes, why do we say 2023? I said, because we don't like to say 2023 years since Jesus was born. That's literally what we would say every time if we wanted to tell you the actual date. We do our whole calendar system by when Jesus came and separated all of time. The year is 2023, and every time you say that number, you are declaring that the most pivotal event in human history took place 2,023 years ago when Jesus Christ was born. He is the point of all of history. He's the point of the Bible. He's the point of the book of Daniel. And if you're living rightly, he's the point of your life. If you're the point of your own life, if popularity is the point of your own life, if relationships are the point of your life, your life is, is a wreck. It's a disaster. The only reason that you exist is that you would come to know the truth that you were built for one purpose and one purpose only, to glorify the living God who knows you, who created you, and who wants you to know him. Daniel helps us understand this. Here's what the text says. The number one problem that we can come across when we read these stories is we think they might be fictitious. I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, I, one of my professions is I'm an apologist, which means I travel to colleges and universities and conferences, and I debate with atheists on the existence of God. And I'll tell you what, I've never lost. You want to know why? Because there's a God. It's like it's not that hard to win an argument when you get to be on the side of truth. 
And as someone who was your age and slightly after, I didn't believe that there was a God when I was your age. I thought it was a bunch of fun stories. I thought the Bible was interesting. I thought church was important, right? Almost every movement of clean water on planet Earth or of uh, compassion to the lowly and oppressed on planet Earth has to do with Christianity. Almost every single charity on planet Earth was either started by, runs by, and is motivated by Christian belief. So I thought the church was a good thing. I just didn't think the Bible was a true thing. And I was horribly, horribly wrong. I grew up going then to biology classes where people told me that I was an evolutionary mistake. And then I understood the actual science and realized I was once again horribly, horribly mistaken. That's the number one problem that we're going to have when we approach the text. Here's the second one. The second problem we're going to have when we approach the text is you're going to hear a story like this of God's incredible miracle in the lives of these guys, and we're going to think that this is the way that it always is when you follow Jesus. We read the text and we do something called prescription rather than description. This is an important, an important thing to note. When you read the Bible, you need to know the parts of the Bible that are prescriptive Prescriptive me that's telling you to do something. Love one another as I have loved you. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter six. Love the, Lord, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. These are prescriptions, right? Just like a doctor writes you a prescription. It's prescribing you, you need to do something or this is how people ought to act. Um, greater love has no one than this that someone would lay down their life for their friends, the New Testament says. This, these are prescriptions. But the Bible's also full of descriptions just telling you what happened, and it doesn't want you to say, we must all do this, or God will always act this way, right? So oftentimes in scripture, when we read it, we look at what God does, and we go, this must be the way that God always does things. This must be the way that things always take place, and here we're going to find a story where we recognize that's really not true. This is a description of God intervening in human history and not to be taken as something that happens all the time for us. I'll tell you what I mean. We see in the play this morning, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, uh, the Nez has a dream, and then they don't know what to do. Darlene prays to God. This is exactly what happened uh, no 2,500 years ago in human history. In, in about the year 500 uh, BC or thereabout, these events actually took place. A man named Nebuchadnezzar had a real dream, and in that dream he saw a statue that was made of a bunch of different metals, and a man named Daniel was spared with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by interpreting that dream for the king. Then Daniel is put in a high position of power because of these things, and here's how the story goes. Daniel chapter 3. So in the dream, there is this large, the, the, the Nez sees this large statue and the head of it is gold. And then there's like bronze and there's like aluminum and all these other metals. And Daniel says that golden head is, you, is how long your reign and kingdom is going to be. But then there's gonna become another bronze, another a bronze and a silver and all, all these, uh, these are all other epochs or other eras. These are other kings that are gonna take over Babylon. Well, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like this. And since he's represented by gold, what does he do? He makes a statue 90 feet high and guess what, he what, guess what metal he makes the whole thing? Gold. 
oh, I'm going to have a dream where my kingdom's coming to an end, will I? Then I'll make a whole statue in gold. My king, here's what he's saying, my kingdom lives forever. And his name, Nebuchadnezzar, literally means the great Nebu will protect my crown. And here's what takes place. He gives a simple command. I'm going to play some music. And when I do, everyone's going to fall on their face and worship this golden statue that I have made. Uh, Here's what it says. Uh, Verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of this music, there's all the different instruments, must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of, of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, you three, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, let's do this again. I'm going to play all this music. And if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. Look, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is very able to deliver us from this. Okay? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognize the power of God. This is important. They recognize the power of God, but then they relinquish and they let go of another aspect. Here's what it says. We recognize the power of God. We recognize that we know and we're comfortable telling you that God is able to deliver. He's a delivering God, right? God made everything out of nothing. After you've made everything out of nothing, everything after that is easy, right? Like healing someone's sickness or um, uh, splitting the Red Sea. After you've made the Red Sea from nothing, when there was just nothing in the universe, there was no existence, there was no time, there was no space, there was no matter, there was no energy, there was no nothing. God, the pre-existent one who's always been there, breathed light and life into everything. After that, he's capable of doing everything because everything that was created was created by him. So to rescue three dudes from a peasant king named Nebuchadnezzar in God's kingdom, when you're up against the great, holy, powerful God of the universe who literally with the word of his mouth can strike down every planet and blow it up in succession, when you're up against that guy, yes, my friend, you are nothing. God is able to, with whatever he wants, to snatch those three, to turn Nebuchadnezzar into a gopher, whatever he wants to do, he's God. So they rightfully recognize, my God can do whatever he wants to do. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. This is their great faith. But then here's a caveat. Here's what they say. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So they grasp his power and they relinquish the knowledge of his will. Did you hear that? We know that God can save us. What we don't know is what he wants with us. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in this really powerful moment, they don't say, well, since God can save us, he must save us. Because God's primary occupation and God's primary responsibility for us three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is to make sure we're protected. We're healthy. We live long lives into our 80s. And we die at a ripe old age of something very common to man. We're comfortable, we're well taken care of, and since that's God's primary role in my life, and since that must be his will, because it takes care of me, I'll tell you what, God is able to deliver me, and he will, because that's what I want him to do. They do something really interesting. They cling to the truth of his power, but then they let go of the idea that they know what God's doing with their lives. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are very comfortable saying, you know what, king? You might burn us in a fiery furnace and God might use our death to ignite the people around us into some kind of fury. It might bring people who have little faith into having much faith. Or you might throw us into the fiery furnace and our death demonstrates that our God is sovereign over all things and we will just show that we're not afraid of death because we believe that we will live again. This is what they're saying. They're saying, I didn't write my story. I don't know why I'm here. I don't, I don't get what God's doing. I, imagine, if you will, um, uh, imagine you are holding a bottle of wine and it's like a $3,000 bottle of wine, right? There's bottles of wine out there that go for $10,000, $20,000. They're very, very, very expensive, okay? Now, what I want you to imagine is I want you to imagine... Uh, the person who makes wine is called a sommelier. I've never talked about this before. Maybe this is an awful analogy. It just came to my head. We'll see. <laughs> if not, you'll forgive me because you're Christians and you have to. So think about, thanks. So think about if you read a sommelier's diary. Okay, a sommelier, they, they want to grow grapes really well and they want to make sure it's perfectly in tune with the varietals they want to make this certain flavor because they want to make expensive, delicate, beautiful wine. And so the sommelier writes in his diary, today, the, the weather in the Central Valley in Napa was 103 degrees. Perfect. It started to scorch the grapes. This is exactly what we need. We need dry land and only for the rains to come at certain times. The, the, the grapes are almost ready to be picked off. They must be sweating in this moment. They are, there's this moment from when, but right before they expire and they start to fester, where they are just starting to shrivel up. Mm, I'm gonna make this into the best wine. And then he says, day two, today was harvesting day. And I went and they were comfortable on their vines and then I ripped them off and I put them all in a place where they didn't want to go. But you know what? I'm making this beautiful wine out of them. And then... It's time for the stomping of the grapes. So I put all the grapes in a big barrel and they start getting stepped on over and over again to make sure that the skin is separated from the juice that's inside and they're pressed and they're crushed and they're hurt and every single, they're just pressed into nothingness. And after everything's been gone from within them, I take what was left over and I allow it to sit. And there's a season of waiting and the diary has to skip days and days and days where though that grape juice just sat doing nothing and it, was, it, it didn't have any real purpose in that moment and it just had to sit there and, 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 and it was getting ready though because I was fermenting it because I meant for something better than that stinking grape on a vine that would just be a grape on a vine. I had something more important in mind for it. 
The sommelier then says, after weeks of fermenting, I don't know exactly how wine is made, but after weeks of fermenting, I brought it out and I tasted it and it was exactly the wine I intended it to become. This is the diary of the sommelier. This is the diary of the grape grower. And we look at that grape grower's diary and we go, interesting process of making grapes. Now, I know this can't happen, but imagine if you were able to crack open the diary of the grape. Imagine, if you will, that grapes could write. And you opened a page one of the grapes diary, what would it say? It is so stinking hot. Why are we sitting here doing nothing? Why am I in the basking heat of the Central Valley? Does anyone care about me? Does anyone see me? Is anyone cognizant of my existence? Am I just nothing to anyone? Day two. Someone came and tore me out of my home today. I was comfortable there. I'm not quite sure where I am. It's dark. It's scary. What's going on? They're talking something about people stepping on us. Not quite sure. I'll clue you in tomorrow. Day three. Today I spent all day getting stepped on. I got pressed. I got crushed. I feel abandoned. Who in the world had this in mind for my grape life? This is awful. I'm squeezed out. I'm poured out. There's nothing left in me. Day 35, still sitting in a barrel. What is the sommelier thinking? It feels like something's growing inside me. It feels like there's this process of fermenting taking place. But all I've seen is darkness for a long time. Day 103, I get it. The sommelier took me out today and he incorporated me into his dinner and I recognized that everyone as they looked at me, they saw the power, the brilliance, the provision, the timeline and the grand master plan of the sommelier who just won the award in all of Napa Valley for the best wine ever made. The diary of the grape and the diary of the sommelier look very different although they're looking at the exact same process. Nowhere in the process does the sommelier question what he's doing. Everywhere in the process of the grape, the grape goes, what the heck is going on? This is where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves. Where in the story thus far have we seen Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be disobedient to God's will? Help me out. Where? Where in the story does it say, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so it was their turn to get thrown in the fiery furnace? Does it say that in your Bible? doesn't say it in mine. So this is what we have to understand as Christians, and this is going to hurt some of our minds, and it's going to break some of our hearts, but I hope that as it splits open your conscience and your idea of who God is, the real Jesus replaces it with himself. Because for some of us in here, we think, if I'm doing God's will, and I'm following what God wants, my life is going to be easy. My health is going to be great. My life is going to be long-lived. My bank account's going to be full. This is bad theology. And we see these guys who have done nothing wrong find themselves refusing to bow to a foreign pagan god and now they're going to get killed for it. Here's what it says. But even if he does not, I recognize his power, but I do not claim to recognize his will. Here's what Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 says. It is perhaps the, the, the most disbelieved verse in all of scripture. God is speaking to us as his people and he writes this. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are greater than yours, declares the Lord. As a dad, I get this. Like, I, I think about this process, and it's a little bit more personal when you take it out of the idea of a sommelier and a grape, but you think of it as like a father and a son. Like, anytime my kids have a medical emergency and you end up doing anything with them, you end up jerking them in different directions that they don't want to go. They don't know what's going on. They're scared. They're screaming. A doctor comes in the room with a big needle. They stick it in the side of them, and they're staring across at you as dad going, what in the heck is going on? And you know the process. I know what's going on. I recognize what's taking place in the middle of that. But the kid doesn't. The kid looks across at me as dad and can go, why aren't you doing something? Why don't you stop the lady walking with the needle? She's got more. What is she doing? Why don't you intervene in this moment? And sometimes he does. Here's what it looks like. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than, than normal, verse 20, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the flame was so hot that the fire actually killed the soldiers who were throwing them in, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, how many guys did we throw in this fire? Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? They replied, yes, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, now I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So they did just that. We love this story. Because God supernaturally, miraculously intervened in the life of these three guys who were being faithful to what God called them to do. But is this a description of an event that took place or is this a prescription of how God always acts? It's a description, which means we can't walk around going, this is all, do you guys know what a martyr is? It's someone who has died for their faith. These three men standing up for what they believed in, would have been martyrs. They would have died for believing in Jesus, for believing in God. So then can we look at this text and go, oh, God always saves people as they're about to die for their faith. Is that true? No. Hundreds of thousands of people throughout the centuries, including this very month, have had their heads cut off for believing in Jesus Christ. Every 11 of the 12 disciples were killed for their belief in Jesus Christ. It, the pattern goes on and on and on. Diocletian, Nero, these early rulers fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome on Christians and then tried to take them all down. Peter was crucified upside down. Isaiah, the prophet, who just, I just quoted, your ways are not my ways, nor your thoughts my thoughts, declares the Lord. The guy who wrote that, guess what? He was hung upside down by his ankles and then sawed in half, starting on his midsection and going up towards his skull. They were hung, drawn, and quartered. They were massacred in the streets. Their heads put on, on spits and put on the gates of the city to demonstrate that I will not tolerate as king any competition from any of these Christians. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the story is a description, and if you know what I know in your life, if you've been following Jesus for more than five minutes in your life, and I know some of you haven't, some of you don't follow Jesus, you don't consider yourselves a Christian, but I'm gonna ask you this question. I'd like you to raise your hand without talking. 
If you've been following Jesus for any period of time in your life, or maybe you used to follow Jesus, and you've ever prayed a genuine prayer, not a dumb prayer, right? Like, God, give me a third arm. It'd be so neat to have, right? That's stupid. But if you've ever, if you've ever genuinely looked into your heart, and maybe it's a sick family member, maybe it's the divorce of your parents, Maybe it's some sort of bullying you've gone through. Maybe it's some kind of pain you've endured and you've asked God to stop it. I'm gonna ask you this question. If you have ever followed Jesus and prayed a prayer for him to protect or take care of you and the answer is no, I'd like you to raise your hand. If you've ever prayed a prayer that God didn't answer, It is all of us. It's all of us. You can put your hands down. The only people without their hands up have either, are either following Jesus and have never prayed a prayer, or they're just not following Jesus. This is how it always goes. This is the system as it always plays itself out. Look down in your Bibles again and read this with me. Focus. Right here. Verse tw- uh, 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace, and he cries out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's commands and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is a description of a miraculous event. I want to tell you part of my story now that we have to understand as Christians, okay? Um, when, When my fifth child was born, I got five kids, Peyton, Harper, Brady, Leo, and Finley. When Finley was born, she was born on March 24th, of 2021. So just over two years ago, she was born. She was born on Peyton Manning's birthday. He's my favorite quarterback. Neither here nor there. It doesn't matter. But um, my wife started complaining of back pains. The back pains hurt so bad that she stopped sleeping. She would wake me up in the middle of the night and she would say, I, I just can't, I can't seem to shut my eyes. My back hurts so bad. So I call the doctor. This is after a few days. And I say, hey doc, uh, my wife just had a baby. It's her fifth one. And if you guys... <laughs> Uh, I, I try to explain to the doctor, like, my, my wife's not a normal human being, right? She was a national softball champion for our college at the age of 19. She started college at the age of 17. She graduated in two years, and she was summa cum laude, which means she was uh, category. She was the smartest person at our whole school. She had the best grades in her class, and she was 19 when she graduated. She started five at-home businesses. She homeschooled all five of the kids, uh, just kind of a power horse. So I said, when Paige complains about something hurting, you know that it's real, right? You know that's a legitimate thing because she doesn't complain about nonsense. So I said, Doc, tell me what we're looking at here. Why do you think her back hurts? He goes, you know what? 99% chance it's nothing except for maybe like a back strain during labor, but there's a 1% chance it's a pulmonary embolism. 
Pulmonary embolism is a blood clot on the lungs, and the danger of a pulmonary embolism is that 25% of people who have them don't know they have them until they're dead because the pulmonary embolism breaks loose from the lung, it goes into the heart, and it stops the heart immediately. My wife, who biology, pre-med, knew all these things, holistic health coach, uh, personal trainer, she knew exactly what this was, and so it kind of freaked her out. We went to the hospital to get it confirmed. What was this thing? And they said, it's a pulmonary embolism. Fortunately, if you can get it solved and you can start on some kind of blood thinner, you're typically okay. The doctor came in and said, and wasn't trying to freak her out, but he did, and he said, I'm glad you guys came in today because if you had waited till next week, you might not be here. But when he said that, what happened in my wife's brain was, well, are you telling me that I almost died? Like, we've got five kids, our life is exactly how we want, we, we've got a house, we've got our dogs, we've got goats and chickens and everything, we've got like our life ready and you're telling me I came within a few days of being dead? And it just kind of, it scared her really bad. It scared her so bad that that night when we, went to, when we went to go to sleep, she wasn't able to fall asleep. When she did finally fall asleep, she woke me up at about 12.30 in the morning, and she shook me awake, and she said, Christopher, I'm dying. Can I go say goodbye to the kids? And I'm just thinking, like, what, what do you mean? You're, like, I'm, you know, when you kind of get woken up out of sleep, you don't really know, like, which way is up. So I'm like, well, what are you talking about? It's like, Call an ambulance, call 911. What the heck's going on? And they said, well, for not having blood to that part of her heart for a while, she might have a little bit of like a palpitation in her heart, or they call it a cardiac infarcture, which means that part of your heart that hasn't been oxygenated beats in kind of a weird pattern. So they said she probably felt that, thought she was having a heart attack from the embolism breaking loose, and thought she was dying, but she's not dying. I assure you she's okay. We spend the night in the emergency room. They do an EEG, an EKG, everything you can possibly imagine to verify that she's going to be okay. The problem is, when the doctor said you almost died, something kind of shifted fundamentally in her brain. What shifted is she thought her brain kind of made this connection that if I fall asleep, I'm going to die. If I fall asleep, that's when that happened, and so if I fall asleep again, I'm going to die. So she stopped sleeping. And when I say she stopped sleeping, she stopped sleeping for 10 days straight. Now, I don't mean to say that she slept a little bit every day for 10 days. She didn't, she didn't close her eyes for one minute for 10 days straight. This is someone who just had a baby, who is presently nursing, who's giving herself six injections a day of blood thinners because she wanted to do an appropriate way so that she could continue to feed the baby because that was important for her. And in order to feed the baby, you couldn't do a typical warfarin dosage, so you had to give yourself injections. So, and this is someone who passed out every time they got shots, but it was so important for her to be able to breastfeed Finley that she continued to give herself shots. So she's giving herself shots, she's not sleeping, she's caring for the baby, and she's in this state of exhaustion. And about day seven, she, I would kind of take a nap during the day and then I would stay up with her all night and try to just calm her nerves because she was afraid she was gonna die. At about day seven, when we were sitting in bed at about three in the morning, she said, Christopher, I gotta tell you something. I'm starting to have suicidal thoughts. And I said, what do you mean? She's like, I... I feel like as I walk around our house, for whatever reason, there's like intrusive ideas that I, I'm like thinking of ways to end my own life. And so I said, Paige, do you want to? And she said, no, I absolutely don't want to. I, I, it feels like a psychosis. It, it feels like something's like compelling me to do this, but no, I don't want to. This started a process of trying to figure out what that was. She ended up getting diagnosed. She went down to behavioral health unit in San Diego, got diagnosed with schizophrenia and psychosis because when you don't sleep for 10 days, your brain fundamentally rewires itself. 
her mechanism of self-preservation basically turned into a mechanism of self-destruction. So how we live our lives and we protect ourselves at all costs, she was trying to harm herself at all costs. And if you had a conversation with her, she would tell you, I love my life, I love my family, I love my future, but I have to kill myself. Which is really confusing, right? It's confusing for a lot of reasons. She had no history with mental health, she had no history with depression or anxiety. It's also confusing because I'm a pastor, right? It's not like I'm you know, selling like exotic cars over market value. It's not like I'm trying to like, kick people who can't afford housing out of their homes and trying to be some like, like I'm, a pa- I'm trying to do the will of God. Like as a family, we're trying to follow the will of God. She led a small group of girls. She was a Bible study leader for them. She did life alongside of them. And so there's just this confusing moment when you feel kind of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where you go, where did I make a mistake, God? Like, where did, I, where did I error? Where did I, where did I commit some kind of crime or sin that you're punishing me and my family for? Like, we're trying to follow you, but we're kind of distracted because my wife, who's 28 years old, is talking about ending her own life. So the prayers can get pretty desperate at this point. And maybe you've prayed a desperate prayer in your life where you just start saying, God, you gotta do something. God, you gotta fix something. God, you gotta change something. So... After the behavioral health clinic, she comes home and her psychiatrist says, you guys just try to find something that's normal for her to do, that she can take her mind off of this constant intrusive thought. And they said, basically, the not sleeping created a trauma response. So you have to deal with the trauma of basically PTSD. She got tested and um, our trauma line in our brain kind of tells what kind of trauma we've been in throughout our life. A normal American has about a trauma line of a two. Someone who comes home from Iraq has a trauma line of about 31. Paige was registering a 64. So in other words, her brain lived as if she was on a battlefield and she was fighting life and death in every single moment. So clearly she wasn't able to sleep. So the doctor said, if you want to start with the healing for the psychosis and the split personality and the schizophrenia and all of the erratic behavior, you need to start with removing trauma from her life. So I said, well, that's good news because this was July 15th of 2021, and guess where I was gonna be next week? Hume Lake. I was gonna be at Hume Lake. I was gonna be teaching at Hume Lake. So I come up for Hume Lake, and I'm standing up on a stage, and I remember the doctor's orders, keep her away from trauma, and our week is going great. It's Tuesday night, which at that point was gospel night, and as I'm teaching, I see someone on the side of the stage start to wave me off, just like I'm teaching right now. Almost the exact date that this took place two years ago, this is what was happening. Someone came in the doors and they said, it's Meadow Ranch 2021. Someone starts waving me off stage, which is a concerning thing. So I wrap up the sermon quickly and I go off stage and I can hear over their walkie-talkies that Leo is unresponsive. Leo is, at that time, he's a one-year-old and he is my fourth child and when I get back to the golf cart over there, they're like, you need to get, bring Chris Hilkin over to the infirmary right away. So when I get there, my son is laying with no movement, his eyes are shut, on a table in the infirmary. And a man comes out, he is a firefighter, and he says, Christopher, we think that your son has swallowed a bottle of your wife's sleeping pills. It's, it's trazodone, it's Ativan. He's like, the... the They didn't have the ability to life flight at night at that point. So the best they could do was try to get down the mountain in an ambulance. So they said, Christopher, get in your van. We're gonna go as fast as we can down this mountain. 
if this is in fact what he has done, at some point down the mountain, his vitals are going to flatline and we're going to need to try to resuscitate him as best as we can. So if you see stoplights, you need to keep your distance because we're going to bring him out and we're going to try to resuscitate him on the side of the road. And I remember getting in the van and I remember I had to go up to the place where we were staying. It's the same room we're staying in now. And I had to go back and I had to talk to my other four kids and my oldest is freaking out because mommy just ran out of the room holding Leo who wasn't moving or, or seeing it. And so she's running across Hume Lake. These random people are coming and trying to help us and here I am as a father trying to teach the gospel to students and yet it seems like you can't catch a break. It seems like in God's great economy, where he's a God of rescuing people from the fire, you can't, you, he's not intervening at all. And so as we're traveling down that mountain, I remember like, this is like visceral anger, primal scream in my van. It's just me, because my wife is holding Leo in the back of the ambulance, and I'm just screaming at God. I'm just mad. There's just nothing that makes sense to me. Why don't you do something? And my problem wasn't that I didn't know what God was like. My problem is that I really know what God is like. I teach systematic theology at a master's level. I teach pastors how to be pastors. I teach different languages of the text. I teach apologetics. So I know what God says in these moments. How many of you, if your son asked for bread, would give him a snake instead? This is how it felt. I'm going, God, I'm calling on you, the great physician, the son of man, the king of miracles, Isaiah 61, Mark 6, Matthew 15, John 4. Do something. I know you say you will, but you're not doing anything right now. We get down the mountain, he ends up getting diagnosed randomly on the same night that my son Brady decided to pour all of my wife's pills down the toilet. My son became unresponsive with a rare condition called acute onset cerebralitis, which is a, it's a neurological response to the onset of some kind of a virus, which makes your whole body go limp, but then in about a week, you're typically good. The problem is, if you think that your son is dying and will be dead within an hour, that might be the peak of trauma in the life of any person. So my wife, who was told to refrain from all trauma, now finds herself in the deepest trauma she could ever imagine. I remember sitting in that hospital room, looking across at her, and just watching her eyes glaze over totally. The wife that I had married in 2013 just seemed to be gone. The psychosis was worse than ever. The schizophrenia was worse than ever. The mental illness, I just got to sit front row and watch this, kind of consume this person that I used to know. It's her birthday the next day. We throw her a birthday party on July 21st, um, which we celebrated last week at Hume. Um, and uh, then the next day, we decided it was time to take her to a long-term inpatient center. She had some more erratic behavior. She jumped off the side of a balcony at one point. She just wasn't, there was nothing rational about what she was doing. And I was spending every night in the room with the kids protecting any behavior that she might do from them. So I would sleep next to the door so if she tried to open it, it would hit me and alert me. So I'm feeding an infant three times a night and taking care of the other four kids all in a room together to make sure that my wife doesn't do something in her psychosis and hurt me or her or anything else. And so we finally find this place, and it's in Tucson, Arizona, and it's supposed to be this long-term 30-day inpatient center, and she just doesn't want to go because she has never been away from us for that long. And, but I remember thinking to myself, this must be God's plan all along. It's like, the, it's, it's like reading the diary of the Somalier. This is, what's, this, is what, this is what God had in mind. He's going to bring us to the brink of destruction, 
And then when everyone thinks that hope is lost, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just like Noah, just like Abraham, just like David, just like Moses, just like everything, getting to the Red Sea, then you're going to part it. You're going to get to the, the mountain, and then you're going to provide a ram to sacrifice rather than Isaac. I see the pattern of God. You wait to the last minute so you can display your wonder. This is what our God is like, I think to myself, as I drop her off at the facility, knowing that I'm not going to see her for 30 days. And on July 31st of 2021, she killed herself in that facility. And now, now you gotta process that. Now you as a Christian, I just sit there and think to myself, as I'm quoting back to the doctor, psychiatrist, and lawyer, I said, what did you just tell me? And he said, this morning your wife attempted suicide and she was successful. So I start, it's like your brain goes into this strange autopilot mode where you just, you, you, you start processing the implications of it, you know? Like, did you just tell me I'm a single dad of five kids? Like, did you just tell me that I've gotta call her dad? and explain why when I took her hand in marriage and I promised to protect her and provide for her that I failed? Like, is this what you're telling me right now? Is this, and then here's the rest of your day. Like, just try to be in that moment with me for a minute. You're a 32-year-old. Your 28-year-old wife has just committed suicide. You're a pastor at a church. You've got five kids. You can go to seminary as long as you want. There's no class for that. There's no class for how to tell five kids that their mom simultaneously loved them and took her own life and she'll never see them again. Like Jesus is easy when life is good, right? You have done great things. We trust in you. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive. You're never gonna let, never gonna let me down. Bull, you're never gonna let me down. What? You wanna tell me a widower of a suicidal woman with five kids that he's never gonna let me down? You're always good in all things? Like Christians, you gotta, you gotta come to some understanding. We can't just sit around for 20 years and call God good and sovereign and then he always does the best thing for you except something's gonna happen in your life and you're gonna realize sometimes that doesn't happen at all. Sometimes the opposite of what you think he should do, he does. And what do you do with God in that moment? Here's the answer. The answer is you either recognize that Christianity either needs to become who you are or it will never be anything to you. And I remember sitting there on the floor of my son's room where I got the information and I had to process in myself to say, I was so mad at God that I remember thinking, God, I know that you're there and I know that you're real. I don't question your reality just because the situation is so absolutely horrific. I don't question your reality. I question your gentleness. I question your goodness. So this is, the, this is kind of the crux. The crux is that the typical way that we experience God is not that as we're in the fiery furnace, some 
fourth person shows up and saves us from it. What's typical for us is that when cancer hits or when some kind of diagnosis comes back or even you in your life, the pain you've experienced and the suffering you've experienced, you have to make sense of that in the realm of a God who sees all and is sovereign over everything. And typically, we forget that we're kind of like the, the diary of the great people and we don't really get the, the story that God is writing that's bigger than us. And, and here's what, what I wanna leave you with. It's been the most important concept for me in the last two years and it's the reason why I sit here on this day and I'm able to tell you that story and while it still stings like a thousand knives jabbing into my heart, I can declare to you with fullness that I've never found God more beautiful than I do now. I've never been more convinced of the deep goodness of God than I am now. I am now as a widowed father of five infinitely more confident in the character of God I don't have any questions about his goodness. And the reason I do not have that is because for whatever reason growing up, I thought that when we called God good, it meant that God was good if my circumstances were good. And I didn't realize that goodness is a character trait of God. Here's what I want you to, I don't know how you want to write this down. If, I, if you remember nothing from this whole week, I want to tell you as someone who has walked through hell on earth, exactly what this idea is because it's gonna be the number one thing that's gonna take you away from faith in Christ is that you're gonna have situations in your life similar to mine that happened and I hope it's nowhere near what happened to me. Some of you, it already is similar to what's happening. Some of your lives, if you came up here and got the microphone, you would tell stories that are atrocious. But if you don't decide what you're gonna do in that moment ahead of time, when that strikes, everything's gonna go south. Here's what I wanna tell you guys. If you wanna open your Bibles, this is where we're gonna end tonight. I need about five more minutes of your time and then we'll go from here. I know there's been a lot of distractions and I appreciate you guys kind of sticking, sticking with me on it. This is the book of Romans. Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. You're gonna need this because at your age, if we just did the statistics, your worst day is still ahead of you. Here's what it says in Romans chapter eight, beginning at verse 28, it says this. For we know that in all things, God works for the, help me out, good. For we know, this is what Paul writing. Paul's writing and he says, for we know that in all things, God works for the, help me out again, good. So there's a promise here, okay? This is a prescription, this is saying, this is a promise you can cling to. In all things in your life, God is going to work for your good, for those who are called according to his purpose. The problem is, when I tell you as an American man, and in postmodern 2023, and I ask you the question in the seat that you're sitting in, if I said, what would it take for you to say, oh, look at my life, God is so good. What would have to happen in your life for you to say, look at my life, man, God is good. What do we attribute to things when we say God is good? What happens to us when we say the phrase, oh man, look at this, God is so good. What happens to us in those moments? Maybe you got a large sum of money, right? You would go, look, my family's rich and God is good. Or you might say, you know what? The sickness is gone and God is good. What else, what else, do, we contrib- what do, what else do we attribute to God's goodness in our culture? What makes, what makes someone good when they give us what? Good, power, influence, relationships, popularity. This is not what the text means. And here's what I want to leave you with is this idea. The very next verse tells us every time you sing of the goodness of God, every time you sing of the goodness of God, and we sing about the goodness of God a whole heck of a lot, 
If what comes to your mind when you say, you're a good, good father, it's who you, if you think you're a good father and good fathers give good gifts like money and health and uh, popularity and all of my wildest heart's desires, if you think that's what God is saying or that's what we mean when we call God good, you're dead wrong. That's not what it means. The very next verse tells us how to define the word good, and it says this. Verse 28 says, For we know that in all things God works for thee. Circle the word good in your Bible. Good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The next verse says this. Paul is going to define what he means. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be, and I want you to circle this phrase, conformed to the image of his son. Now I want you to tie those two things together, maybe with a line, maybe with an equals, in my Bible, those two things are circled and there's a line between the two of them. Why? Because the goodness of God in your life will always look like him drawing you nearer to him. The goodness of God in your life is come hell or high water or any circumstance, he will use a job that you get, a job that you lose, a friendship that you make, a friendship that you lose, health that is good, health that is bad, all for one purpose. And that purpose is to draw you nearer to him. When we sing of the goodness of God, we are basically declaring to him, God, I trust that any distraction in my life, you'll take away to draw me near to you. I trust that any mountaintop I experience, you will help me understand that it is you who's given it to me and conform me more to your image. I trust the goodness of God is his declaration and promise to use everything we go through to draw us closer to him. That's why I can look at you today and say, I've never experienced the goodness of God more than when I was sitting on the floor of my son's room finding out that my wife had taken her own life. Because never in my life had I ever felt broken like that. Never in my life had I felt that I didn't have an out. Never in my life had I ever felt abandoned before where Jesus was my only comfort. You see, God's good, but he's not good the way that we thought that he might be good. So when we read Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we think, that's the kind of God we serve, a God that always rescues, you're wrong. Sometimes he doesn't. But I love what they say. God, we know your power, but we just don't understand your whole will. It's the diary of the grape. Your life is being made into something that you don't know, but God makes one promise. He will use everything that happens to you to draw you near to him. I want you to know from me who has been through it, and my kids, you'll watch them walking around who have been through it. We've seen death face to face. We've watched mental illness face to face, and I know some of you are struggling with that. Some of you have family members who are struggling with that. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you are in the thick of your own pain right now, but I wanna tell you something. God never says in scripture that he's near the victorious and those who are really high and mighty. You know what he says? Our Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Our God is familiar with your pain. He dwells with us in it. God promises us four things in scripture. There's gonna be pain. We're gonna be persecuted. But he's gonna be present and paradise is coming. And for some of us, that's the only hope we're gonna have on some days is that there is a very real paradise that God has made for us where there'll be no more pain, no more death, no more mental illness, no more suffering. But I want you to start thinking these big thoughts now, what will you do when suffering hits your life? Because friend, it's coming for you. And if you don't have a game plan and a theology of who God actually is, when that day happens, you will lower your theology to match your pain and you'll probably get rid of God in the, in the process. Would you pray with me? God, as we walk through Babylon, 
we cannot possibly expect that Babylon isn't gonna eat us up and spit us out. We can't possibly expect that Babylon's gonna go easy on us. We can't possibly expect that as Christians we are gonna be well received, that the message of the kingdom of God in a foreign Babylon is going to be something that is praised and adored. And God, because of our sin and Adam and Eve's first rebellion against you, all of nature has fallen. That means health, that means DNA, that means creation, that means everything has fallen, including the mental health state of it. It's all messed up because we invited sin into the picture, God, but we know that you're redeeming it. We've read the last page and you win, but God, in the middle of this brokenness and hurt and pain that we're experiencing, even in this room, would you show yourself more beautiful and more present and more good than we ever thought you were, but not how we define good. It's how you define good. In your name we pray, amen.